Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Sava. I am the head of content at a company called Robot. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining uh, me on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Ashley. Can you maybe tell um, our listeners like what's the most exciting thing you're working on right now? Yeah. Um, so I joined the company um, that I'm at probably about four months ago now, and we are actually going through the process of building our content team from the beginning. Um, at the moment, I am head of content, but I am also the only one on the content department. So I am looking for uh, positions to fill now, like a designer and a videographer, and hopefully another couple of content writers and editor kind of um, positions. But um, just being able to kind of come in from a company that's a little bit new and just have all of that under my umbrella is going to be um, a good challenge for me. A lot of the times when I've come into companies, um, I might be one of the only content people, but they're not looking to do that yet, unfortunately, or they already have a content team structure and I'm coming in after the fact. Um, this will be my time kind of being able to build that and baby that and you know develop that from nothing. And I'm definitely excited about that potential of that. Absolutely. Can you maybe share a little bit more about your philosophy when it comes to like building, let's say your dream content team? Well, if I had, you know, um, endless budget, <laughs> well, I already know kind of what I would want that to look like, but, um, I think that there are a lot of different moving parts in a good content team. And there are companies out there that I like admire that I think have done a lot of what I'm talking about, but I think what happens in a lot of content teams today is that you have um, an Ashley type of individual who's basically doing all of the social media. They're doing all of the content. They don't even have anybody editing for them because there's nobody else on the team um, capable or available to do that. Um, they're doing the strategy while they're also putting together all of the content. They're also analyzing all of the content um, kind of finding out the, um, how things are performing. Um, and it gets to a point in any operation that is going up that, um, you're not able to handle all of that anymore. And what happens is that those little things that become bigger things and you're not able to hold them all anymore. And if you don't have, um, buy-in from a company that's able to look at that and be like, oh yeah, we definitely need to onboard a lot more people to help out with um, these different moving pieces. Then um, what happens is people get burned out and they leave the company and then they basically get another employee like it, Ashley, that is going to take it on again for about a year. And then it's all falling down. Um, I think um, companies need to invest a little bit more in content. There should be um, at least one individual who is a little bit more on the strategic end um, of content. There should be a couple of people on a team that are very involved with their writing. Um, ideally, an editor would be a good thing to have too, because it's always good to have another um, set of eyes looking over um, the content that you develop. Um, another thing is design. Um, I have often been employed at companies that will not hire an in-house designer. Um, maybe you have a little bit of budget to get a couple of people freelancing. Maybe you don't. And then you end up doing that too. I think that that needs to be that in-house number one. I'm a huge advocate for having that individual in-house 
And I think that they need to be very close together with um, the content team, just helping them shape the content and not just being order takers. I think that a lot of the times we, we bring in the design people too late in the game and they're able to kind of visually conceptualize like what things have the potential to be like if you can get them in on time. Um, videographer is especially important now. I think people are attempting to fill like what they do with content people. They're trying to get a designer who could do everything and also do video. And a lot of those times, those two people need to be two different people too. Um, if you can get another one of those in-house, I think that they're very helpful now. And as we can all, um, attest to now, people like videos, they like to consume content and video. Um, and it's, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Video is just getting bigger and bigger. And if you are like me and video editing is not your forte, or maybe you can do it, but it takes you a lot longer to do it than somebody who's like designated to do it and an expert in it. I think that having them available to do that is a big thing. A lot of companies get to a point as well that they do need um, more of like a content focused social media manager type. That is not just the content um, manager helping out and, you know, kind of building the community with people and engaging all the time and doing a lot of that social listening that we let go. Having them on the team is important as well. Well, I think a good foundation of a content team would have all of that, but, um, you know, we don't all have that luxury in the beginning, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you kind of really summed up like what a really thorough content team looks like um, for, you know, teams where I know a lot of times you've been in roles where, you know, budget doesn't allow for the like absolute dream team. And you kind of have to figure out which roles are the most essential for someone who might be listening to this, who is in this position where they don't necessarily have the budget to be able to hire um, and have like, you know, a five, 10, 15 person content team, what are the kind of, you know, three to five most essential roles that, you know, anybody should be at, that you think anyone should be having? Yeah. So for a content marketing manager type or a content leader, head of content that is looking to hire just a few people from the get-go, um, I would say graphic designer is probably number one. Um, I know a lot of people, like I can't even name how many in content that come to me on LinkedIn, especially, and they ask me about this and how come they can't get buy-in from their um, manager or their company to help with that. A lot of them, they're band-aiding the solution and they're using an existing, like a product designer um, who doesn't have enough time or bandwidth to take on what marketing needs. And they're just having them do it when they can. Um, that definitely fails. <laughs> you can't keep up with that for a long time. What happens is you have a lot of content that's done, but it's not visually ready to go. And you'll just keep it on the backlog. And eventually it'll be kind of expire because it won't be, um, in the time that it should have came out anymore. Um, that's probably number one. Like you need them to be more focused, not on the product, but they need to be focused on marketing. And that's kind of a different, um, I'm not saying that designers can't do both, but usually they're designers that are more like, oh, kind of like jazzed about doing one or the other. So I think that would be number one. Number two, I would say if you are a content manager who is very involved, which you would be, I would think if um, you don't have a big team yet in the actual production of the content, get you an editor. 
Um, and editor makes all of the difference in the world. Editors are also usually fully capable of helping out in the actual content creation. Um, and you can edit for each other, like if you have a small team while you need to, but um, that is an essential backbone kind of a thing of a job. Um, I don't think that that is a position that you should freelance out to. I think you need to have them kind of getting the voice and the brand of the company and being there all the time. Um, that might be my number two. And then I would say that um, having somebody on the team that is both able to be probably proven at this point, like a community type of content person who's very good on social media, but also it has maybe built some kind of a community from the ground up at another organization, or maybe they just have a desire to do that. Um, I think when we are too involved in distribution um, and all of the million other things you're doing in content that you're not doing as good of a job with it, usually you can have a huge effective distribution plan on paper and then not able to keep up with it all when you're getting live interactions happening from maybe their prospects, maybe it's just your audience, maybe it's your actual customers and you're not able to engage with them quickly enough or you're not able to kind of feel the discussions happening or even build a community for them to happen because you have a lot of other things to create all the time. So I would, if you had, couldn't get anything, I would go from there um, budget wise. And then over time, add the other things that we talked about um, eventually. And I've only had this one time and it was absolutely amazing, but we did have a content analyst at a company I was at before. And they, their whole entire job was to look at all of the performance of any kind of content that we had it going up on the webpage, on social media, wherever else it might be. And then they calculated what kind of content was performing better. So if we had, they were like, oh, wow, well, when you guys talk about this topic from this angle and you promote it on this channel, it's getting a lot of eyeballs and a lot of um, discussions going. But when you're talking about it from this angle and you're not using an image, like it was very technical in a lot of ways. Um, that individual also kind of handled um, search engine optimization tactics back then. And they like alleviated a lot of the pain when it came to what's happening with the content after it goes out. We have amazing content going out all the time and, and then we forget about it. And a lot of times it can be used again or you know repurposed. And if you don't have anybody like that looking after it, you forget about it. It just happens. You move on and you don't think about it again. But a lot of the times it might have more legs to continue and we just let it die. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I know we have a very similar background in the sense that we're both kind of journalists turned content marketers. Um, and I wanted to kind of get your opinion on when did you know you wanted, you were thinking about transitioning from being a reporter to getting into marketing and how did, what did that transition look like for you? Yeah, this is probably one of the most asked questions that I get from people at both that are in journalism now and that maybe they're just in companies and they're asking me like, why should I hire a journalist? Like what made you tick things like that. But, um, for me, I was a young kid knowing I wanted to be a newspaper reporter. So I don't think I ever wanted to do anything like, but that, um, I did everything that I could to get completely immersed in journalism in middle school, even high school, 
college, I went to journalism school, just like you talked about. We both went to Mizzou, so fellow alum here. But um, I did all the things that you should do to do what you're planning on doing. And I honestly thought, like, even when I was graduating, that I would be doing that my whole life. Um, and then I did um, newspaper reporting. I had a couple of jobs doing that, one as a weekly reporter and one as the editor-in-chief of my hometown newspaper. And I think there were a lot of factors that went into me kind of coming to the realization, like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this forever. One of them, as you know, too, was definitely money. Um, money is very tight in journalism. I think that that was no shock to anybody. Um, I think I got told that when I was going to college, like, why are you going to be doing this job? You'll make no money. And at the time I didn't even think about money. It was just passion. Like, because I love it was like the only way I functioned back then. But then, you know, you go into reality and you get hit with it. And you're like, oh my gosh, I don't think I'm going to be able to pay all my bills. And even if I can pay all my bills, like I don't like to be at the checkout line and wondering if when she tells me how much my groceries come out to, like if I'm going to be able to pay my electric bill now. And that was definitely happening to me. And I feel like I'm pretty careful at, you know, things like managing money and budgeting, but it was tough. But the other thing was just the on-call aspect of everything. And that one maybe was a little bit more powerful for me because I was getting into situations where I was attending um, family functions or I was in the middle of doing, you know, anything. It could just be sleeping. And then you get called to cover a story because the news is never asleep. And I knew that. And there was a time in my life that that was um, fine with me, but it was beginning to cause conflicts in my family. Um, people eventually get ticked off because they think that you're flaky and you're breaking commitments, which isn't what was happening. And I think deep down people kind of got that, but then, you know, you, they just don't want to, it's almost like you don't, they don't want to invite you anymore because they know that they're going to invite you and you're going to leave in the middle of it, or that you're going to tell them, you know, an hour before, like, never mind, Like I got called in. I can't, I can't come anymore. So that was happening. I also got married pretty young. I was 20. Three, I guess when I got married and 22 when I got out of college and it was kind of affecting things at home um, because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be there to do things that you should be doing. You would think when you get married, like just going places together, it was tough to make plans. And even all of that, like I was, I kept going because I love what I did. I, I did like, I look back at it and I think back to the times that I had in journalism and in newspaper. And I legitimately miss a lot of it. Like I love the, I love the feeling of hitting a deadline and I don't know, like fitting text. Like when you have to just chop off a little bit of text to get it to fit in the box. Like I even love that. Like any geeky thing you can think about, about newspaper, about journalism. I loved all of that, but, um, it got a little bit out of hand when I ended up finding out that I was going to be having a baby <laughs> and that hit me a little bit differently because it wasn't planned, number one. And number two, I knew immediately, as soon as I found out I was going to have a baby, I knew I wasn't going to be able to be in newspaper anymore. And I couldn't do anything about it when I had her. Um, I think it was one month after I went back to the job, which by the way, newspaper, you don't get paid when you have a baby for leave. And I already was having a lot of issues financially, but yeah, there's no paid maternity leave. Um, I think I was allowed to take six weeks off and then they were going to um, basically fire me if I didn't come back. So I had a lot of anxiety coming back into it. 
I didn't feel like I had um, anybody that I could go to to talk about things um, in the organization that I was in. Um, it was just, I knew I was going to look for another job when I went back. So I maybe a month into going back, I was like, okay, what do I do now? And I talked to a couple of people who had already quit journalism about what they were doing. And almost everybody I talked to was like, just go to advertising. That was the place to go. Just go to advertising. You'll be fine. You're good with copy. Like you'll like it. And it almost kind of felt like a natural fit because a lot of the personality traits of people in advertising are like in journalism and especially in an unhealthy way. And I didn't think I wanted that. And then a couple of people I talked to told me you could go to PR. And to me at that point in life, that kind of felt like the enemy still. <laughs> and I couldn't do that. And I honestly just Googled, I think I had went on journalismjobs.com and I looked for jobs that were not in journalism, but they still had the qualifications where they wanted people with a journalism background. And I found a job and it was called a content marketing specialist. And I had no idea what that was. I honestly didn't know what it meant at all, but I liked how in the background of the job description and things, they talked about how they wanted to make sure that whoever they hired was, you know, I had a background in um, print journalism and it was basically like me to a T and I showed up to an interview and it was at Concordia University um, in Austin and had no idea what the job was. Like I didn't know. And honestly, she didn't know um, what it was going to be exactly yet either. But um, I had a very good interview um, and they told me I, her name was Lisa and she was an amazing woman. But she told me basically everything that they wanted. They didn't know how they wanted to get there. But what they had used up until then was they basically outsourced a whole bunch of content type people to do things like press releases, to do things like um, just helping them with the alumni magazine. Um, they didn't have anybody doing any of that in-house and she was building a very tiny marketing team. And there were only a couple of people on the team when I got there. And she was like, I like you, I think you can do it. I don't care that you don't know anything about marketing because I didn't, and I told her that um, in the interview, I was like, I don't know anything about marketing. I have no idea what a content marketing specialist is. And she told me, well, you're in a university, we'll teach you. And she did. And I feel like I got very lucky with that because like I said, I didn't know what this job was. I didn't know how to do marketing. I didn't even, I don't think I even understood completely what marketing was like in the broad spectrum of things, but I felt like she showed enough like appreciation for what she thought I would be capable of. And the fact that they were like, no, we're, you know, you're going to a university. We will teach you. We're going to teach you what you need to know to get where you need to go. And we're not leaving you out here. And she was like, I don't want to hire somebody with a marketing background. I want to hire somebody who is a journalist. And that's what we want. We want to tell stories. And that's kind of how I got into content. And from then on, I've mostly been in B2B um, tech content has been where I have landed from that moment. Um, and I found a lot of joy in uh, going into startups and helping them get out there and make a brand and just um, kind of take a lot of the stories that are going on in the companies internally too all the time, but nobody is able to create content for it because nobody has time to do it. Um, and that's kind of my passion. I guess my passion always probably has been telling stories and it doesn't matter if I'm doing it 
um, from a journalistic perspective or for a company. It's just about people in the end. And I like people. Absolutely. So going back a little bit to when you were first started at your first marketing job at Concordia, um, can you maybe walk through some of the mindset shifts that you had to make um, to go from being a reporter to now basically doing marketing for a university? It was a little difficult for me, um, just mentality wise. I remember like um, the dean asking me to create a quote for him, like just make one up and that he was going to approve it or not. And I was so against that. I was like, just let me talk to you. (laughs) Like that was mine. I was like, just let me talk to you just for a few minutes and we'll get what you need out. And then it'll be authentic and it'll be from you. And I'll literally only take up a minute of your time. He was like, no. (laughs) And just, and then I'm like, wow, well, I have to listen now because it's the, you know, it's the Dean of admissions. And he is asking me to invent this quote for him. And I would have never done that in journalism. Of course. Um, I wouldn't have even changed a quote that somebody didn't like in journalism because that's completely unethical there. But, um, things like that, like I have to always, you know, like always having to shape things in a positive way. When in journalism, you don't do that. You shape things the way that they're happening. If they're good, they're good. If they're bad, they're bad. If they're neutral, they're neutral. You don't have an opinion on it, but you show it like it is. And then this is like, you do have an opinion on it and you want to make sure that everything looks fine and dandy, even if it isn't. Um, I had a little bit of difficulty with that. And it was more like an ethical difficulty for me um, because of like, I couldn't I would have never fathomed doing anything like that before, but I got it and I didn't fight it too much. I did fight a lot about making up the quotes. I did not like that. And even today I do everything I can to not have to invent those things because I feel like I could talk to anybody and get a good quote out of them. I don't think there's anybody I've had an issue doing that with. If I don't get it in question number one, I'm going to get it in question number two. Like, I don't need to do that. But if you like, are you know, flat out, like, no, I'm not talking to you and you have to do it. Then I mean, you got to do what you have to do. I just got a job and I have to do what I have to do to not lose my job. There were things like that. (laughs) One of my biggest, and hey, I am proud of this. Like I'm going to go down to my grave with this. When I got to Concordia, they use the Oxford comma, not all the time because there was no editorial style guide, but they used it when they felt like it. I do not like it. And um, in AP style, of course, we didn't use it. I eliminated it um, and it was tough and I got a lot of pushback, but to this day, they have kept that in-house designer that I had worked with every day. And she will not let people use that comma. Like she had that much loyalty to me back then, even that today in 2022, there's no Oxford comma going into anything that she puts design on. She will take it out. And I don't know. I feel very proud about that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, you kind of also hinted at when you were at your time at Concordia that you happened to have a really great manager. Um, can you maybe oh, yeah. like walk through some of the things that like she was able to help you with to be able to kind of get to the point where you could be like a rock star marketer? The thing I liked about her was that she never made me feel inferior for not knowing anything. Occasionally I would go into like a team meeting and they would use some of like, you know, marketing acronyms. Like if you don't use them, you don't know them. And I would be in a meeting and people would be talking in marketing acronyms that I didn't know yet. And she didn't 
make it, she didn't make me ask. She would look at my face sometimes and she would clarify what they were talking about. And I, so I didn't feel, I mean, I never had to feel like I was out of place there. And I definitely would have asked because one thing that journalism teaches you is you cannot ask too many questions, but she didn't want me to feel inadequate. Um, and, um, she was very hands-on with, um, helping me get to a point where I understood like fundamentals. Um, we had another member of the team that she helps me, um, connect with that got me better with like analytics. That was a weakness for me, um, at the time. And she basically had him like, you know, sit down with me and talk about like what analytics meant and what you needed to look for on the back end and things like, um, call to actions and whatnot that I didn't do uh, any of that in, um, journalism. She walked me through a lot of that. They also did a good job of asking me what I thought about from an audience perspective, because why they wanted a journalism to come on journalist to come on was because they wanted it to be not like when they made content that it was salesy. They wanted it to be like anybody could enjoy the content and it was going to be educational and it was going to teach people things, even if they didn't end up going to the university or telling their kids to go to the university, whatever the angle was. Um, and they, they just made me feel confident in what I was doing and the way that they made me feel made me more, I guess, open to taking feedback from them and to like asking for help because like in the beginning, I just didn't know what a lot of things meant. Um, I also had the opportunity to get, um, some extra help in marketing because they did have marketing courses there. And even though I didn't take them, they had faculty I could go to, to ask questions, which was cool. Um, and I don't know, I feel like they gave me a good foundation to be open to learning, but they also were like willing to collaborate with me and ask me like what I thought about things. I never felt like I was uh, like out of place there. I always felt like I was at home and they did everything that I could, they could to make me feel like that. And that was an environment that I could fail in and that I was going to get help in and that they weren't going to leave me out in the cold, not knowing what to do. And I hadn't had that before. And any job, um, I didn't have a job before that cared about my professional development. Um, I'm not, there's nothing, <laughs> I'm not trying to say anything against newspaper, but, um, that's not a thing there. They do not do performance reviews, at least nowhere that I was at. They do not invest in you and give you opportunities to go take a leadership class. Like that's just not a thing. Um, and then going into an environment where they want you to do all of that, like it was, a, I mean, it was a total like awakening for me. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to kind of just, it sounds like you just had just like got really lucky with an amazing manager who really mm -hmm. understood how to actually be a coach. Um, are there things that like, you know, as you've kind of grown in your own career, are there things that you've kind of taken from that experience when you're like managing other people or like, how has your own leadership approach evolved over the last few years? I think the number one thing I took away as a leader from that amazing leader that I had was that I think that people can have different backgrounds. So like when I'm looking at a potential employee and maybe they don't have a background in tech, but they have an amazing background in content and maybe it was in B2C or maybe they managed their own company and it failed, but they learned all these cool things from it. Um, like I don't let that prevent me from giving them a fair shot. Like I will interview them. I will get to know them. And when they come on, I will advocate for them to get the resources they need 
um, to get kind of like close the gap on things they might not know, whether that be, I'm going to get budget for them to take classes if they want to, or I want them to get people that were going to be willing in the company, maybe to shadow anything that I need to do to get them like fully, um, onboarded and feeling comfortable. Because if you feel comfortable and you feel confident, then that's when you're going to perform at your top level. Absolutely. And if you could go back to when you first had to manage your very first person, what piece of, knowing what you know now, what's one piece of advice you would give to yourself back then? I guess you don't mean in journalism, no? You mean like- uh, I mean, journalism, marketing, I kept it wide open. It's like the first time you had to have any sort of interaction where you're managing someone, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself back then? <laughs> My first people management experience was unfortunately in newspaper. And because of the nature of the job and the fact that I had never had any leadership training and I didn't have very good leaders um, generally, um, or at least not very um, involved in my learning or development, no leaders like that, um, I would go back in time and probably do more proactive like leadership training on my own. Um, There are so much things available like in books and online that I could have probably done while I was in newspaper that I didn't do. Um, and I didn't even think to do that because that was such an afterthought. Um, newspaper was like a mill in a lot of ways. They just like, they go through people and they throw them away. And if they're not making deadlines, they don't invest anything. Like they just fire people and hire people and fire people again. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on performance development. I had never had a performance review in any way. No one gave me one. I never gave one. I didn't even think about doing that. We did not get any kind of training in any of that. And there was no one exemplifying it on their own. If I did anything good, I would have had no idea about it. If I did something bad, I probably would have. Um, But there was just nothing. There was no like accountability for anything unless you messed up. So nobody was telling you that you did a good job in newspaper ever. Like maybe the community, but like people... People out there, they didn't tell you, people in your job, they didn't tell you anything. As long as everything made the deadline, didn't matter how it got to the deadline, just matter that it was quality and it came out. And then the next day, another one was going to come out. It, there was just none of that. Um, then when I got into leadership in my first um, job in tech, so that what it was like shortly after I left Concordia, I got handed a big team. Oh, it wasn't a team that I built Um, It wasn't a team that I hired anybody into at the time. It was a team of eight people. um, And they were all what I would call at the time, um, probably generalized marketing coordinator types. And I was um, kind of the head of content of these people. Um, They were in another country, all of them. So they were all based in Brazil, which was amazing. They were, I mean, amazing people. Some of the most outstanding people I had probably ever got to meet. Um, very like willing to learn and to grow. And I remember like in my quarter number one, I had to give performance reviews and I had never done that. So what I did, um, because they didn't give me any training on this was I got a whole bunch of books and I was like, okay, how do you give a performance review? And I had to do eight of them. Um, and having never done anything like that before, I got feedback from one of my um, one of my employees, and I was actually shocked to hear from this particular employee because I actually thought I had given her the most positive feedback of any of the employees that I had managed at the time. And she told me, "Hey, I want to talk to you about um, my performance review." And I was like, "Okay, cool, let's talk about it." And she got on a call with me, 
And she said, I noticed on my performance review um, that you, you know, you mentioned a lot of amazing things that I've been doing. Um, but the thing that you dwelled on, so the thing that I had given the most devotion to on her performance review was this one thing that I thought she needed to improve on. And she didn't like how on my approach that I like focused a lot on this one thing. And I just kind of glazed over all of the amazing accomplishments she had had that quarter. And she told me about it. And I think from that moment on, I became the number one advocate, which I am to this day of feedback on feedback. So when you get feedback, it is okay for you to deliver feedback on that feedback. I think usually it's good that you can collect yourself and think about it for a little while. But if people give you feedback and you think that that feedback is not fair, or you just don't agree with the feedback, or you want to talk more about that feedback, you can go to that individual and give them feedback on how they gave you feedback. And it's not something that I would have known if she wouldn't have done that for me. But I tell everybody I'm the people manager of now, please do that. I want the feedback on my feedback. I want my feedback to be better. I don't want to give anybody feedback and have them dwelling on like, oh my gosh, she hates what I did. And that's all she's thinking about now because it's probably not the case. I want to give better feedback. And we talk a lot in this society about like how to take feedback or how to give feedback. But most of the time we don't talk at all about how to give feedback on somebody else's feedback. And I don't know why. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I think that's like such a golden tip. Um, but kind of just going backward, back to what you were saying a little bit before, where it's like, hey, I got dropped into this role. I now have eight people reporting yeah. to me. I've never given a performance review in my yeah. life. And you just started just going out and trying to read everything you could. I can imagine that would be incredibly stressful. Can you maybe walk me through a little bit about some of the resources you found at that time and how you're even able to you know, put anything together even before you had that conversation with that one employee? It was especially tough, I think, because um, I had a lot of them to give and they only gave us, I think, a week to do them. And I had a lot more people that I managed than other people doing performance reviews. And I wanted to devote like equal attention to each of them. And the fact that I only had a week to get through them all made it a little tougher. I found, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a LinkedIn course. And it was just about like the basics of like, how do you give one? And I watched that. I checked out a book, I think. Um, but the thing that helped me a little bit more was that LinkedIn course. I bet if I go through my LinkedIn history, I can find it way, way back there. But um, it basically talked about like how to, because it was an open template. They didn't give us, I don't know if you've been at companies or you you're in a company now where they give you like specific questions to or bullet points to fill out. It was completely not like that. It was opened. It was just like, you were going to give a performance review for this employee. And that was it. Like there wasn't like a, a one out of 10 for that or any kind of criteria. You just had to do it. So I covered everything like from skills to potential to like how I felt like they were interacting with the teammates to collaboration to, I mean, just about anything that you could think about. And I probably spent a little bit too much time on them, not because you shouldn't spend a lot of time on them, but because I didn't know how to do them. And they were way too long. I think when I did them in the beginning, especially because for me being the wordsmith that I am, I felt like everybody needed like 
900 words or something. I mean, I'm sure that they barely could get through them. I'm kind of like, I look back on the, that time that I did them, kind of like, oh man, like if, if I would have known what I know now, I wouldn't have, I would not have structured them like that at all. But, um, I didn't have, I did ask for help, um, because I hadn't done them before. And I think my, I think my um, manager at the time was like, you know, just give them feedback on what they're doing. It's not like, don't think too much about it. I think that was the feedback that I got from asking about it. So I was like, okay. And you know, when anybody tells you, don't think too much about it, you automatically think, oh my gosh, I'm thinking way too much about this. Unless I don't know if everybody's like that, but I am. So I was like, I think I'm overthinking it. And then I like, um, I wanted to make sure that I highlighted and I apparently hadn't done that well enough, like how amazing I thought things were going when they were good. And to make sure for each uh, point that I thought they needed to improve on that I gave like kind of an actionable plan, because I don't want to give anybody negative feedback and then just leave it there. I think there's a plan that needs to go into place when you give that um, to help them to coach them through that. And I, a lot of the things that I did, they were just too complicated. And I don't think that normal human beings would have wanted to get a copy of like my, my first go at those eight reviews. Absolutely. And I could go on and probably talk about this for hours and hours, <laughs> but before we wrap up, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Yeah. Um, if you were to win $10 million tomorrow, what would you spend it on? Okay. I would probably invest on in this day and age. I'm not sure what all I would invest in. I am lucky that I have a father who's like very on top of all that stuff, but I feel like I have a lot of things that I need now. I love my home, love my cars. I love my stuff. Um, but if I had, you know, like that much money, I would like to invest it so I can make later, better decisions for things like planning for my kids college one day and, you know, like setting her up good for later in life. I only have one kid. Her name is Delia, by the way. And I want her to have everything that I have had, but mostly everything that I never had. I want her to have any opportunity to do anything that she wants to do, whatever that is. Um, and I probably would open another thing like a charity for cats. <laughs> I am like, I'm like a crazy cat lady. I have, I only have two because we cannot have more than that. Um, I don't think that would be allowed in my house. <laughs> my husband would probably kill me if we got more, but, um, I like have a passion for them and I would like to be able to like donate more to like cats that don't have homes and things like that, just because I love them. But yeah. That's awesome. And if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? I feel like I would choose Edgar Allan Poe because when I was a kid, he like was the, I mean, obviously he was a short story writer too, but like his poetry was kind of like what got me into doing poetry. And I was into poetry when I was quite young. I think I was making a go at it when I was probably eight and I'm sure that they were humiliating. Um, but I think he was just like a interesting human being. And, um, I feel like his, his work like has lasted um, way beyond his time. I think people look at him and they think of like, oh, wow, like the Raven, like that's about it. But he actually did quite a few like amazing short stories and mysteries and poetry. And he got me into probably a place where that I am now because I, if it wasn't for authors and things like him that I had in my life, maybe I wasn't going to be doing what I am now. I could be doing another completely different thing. That's why I'm an advocate um, for making sure that um, parents, um, you know, spend time reading with their kids too, 
Um, I think that a lot of the values that I have now are because I had a mom and a dad who no matter what happened before I went to bed, like they read me a story until I could do it on my own. And um, they provided us with a lot of um, me and my sister with a lot of um, books and literature and, you know, uh, I, I got to go to the library anytime I wanted to do. So like, you know, making sure that kids have that foundation, I think is important. I love it. It's been so great chatting with you, Ashley. Where can the listeners find you online? Definitely on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me. It's um, linkedin.com. My um, profile is Ashley Amber Sava. Um, I am very active on LinkedIn and I know it could be tough to go through like LinkedIn messages and whatnot, but I do everything that I can to actually get back to people who message me. Um, as long as it's not like a blatant pitch slap, <laughs> I get back to people as quickly as I can on there. Um, inbox can get a little out of control, but I always eventually get back to that. And then you can comment on many of my posts and I'm, you know, I'm engaging all of the time. If I um, don't get to you, then I will. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I'm like, it was amazing to be on today and um, I'm going to continue to follow you as well. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.